0: Again, if, if Mr. Backlund is to falter here, certainly don't fault Bob Backlund. Mr. Backlund, I would suspect, is trying this for the first time.
1: Okay, Tell so he you like he, he'll give it a go. Well, he doesn't want to look bad, of course. I can assure you that it is very, very difficult. From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show.
0: Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Grappellerium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie thinks he's so big discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition due to the coronavirus pandemic greetings from allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience
2: Welcome to episode 195 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, we're going to go back to a well. I I don't know if it was a foggy Christmas Eve in 1983. I was only four years old. I barely remember anything that would have taken place that year. We're going to go back to all-star wrestling from the World Wrestling Federation from Christmas Eve of 1983. Or, as they were calling it at the time, a very backland Christmas. Or... Sheiky, the transitional champion, (laughs) or maybe just Bobby, the fading champion. I I don't know. Whatever you really want to call it. Backlund, with your singlet tight, won't you drop the strap tonight? Well, a lot of that is going to be built up on this show where Bob Backlund, after almost six years as WWF champion is going to lose the title two days after this at Madison Square Garden. And plus the rest of the show is very representative of the World Wrestling Federation of the year 1983, which might not be the best thing in the world. Before I get into all that, why don't I get in my place? You email the show, to Allentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. And on Twitter, give me a follow at GF Allentown pod. That is at GF Allentown pod. Don't forget GFA live on the weekends. This past Sunday, Keithy and I recorded on the best of the world wrestling federation volume 11, which was pretty good and a solid effort, even if it lacked, <laughs> lacked any sort of imagination at the beginning with Gene Oakland just hanging out in the interview area. It's not in a studio like most of them. So next weekend, this coming weekend will be. Volume number 12, which would be the 19th one of those that we have done, and that'll leave only volume 15 after that. You may recall a couple of weeks ago I talked about a certain Monday where I logged on to the computer to go to work, and I saw that my immediate direct supervisor had given her notice and that a project manager on the largest project that I work on was also leaving. Well, today I'm recording this late Monday night, I found out that the consultant that I work most closely with on a wide variety of projects just up and quit over Thanksgiving. Like, not even saying goodbye to his near and dear American colleague. But unfortunately, you know, that's just the way the world works, I guess. So I, I suppose it opens an opportunity for me, just like Shawn Michaels, thankfully, bowing out of the picture because he was too injured in 1998. I think that's kind of really an underrated thing that I think we should talk about more is how Shawn Michaels would have ruined 1998 <laughs> WWF because you probably don't get the rise of The Rock if Shawn Michaels is there to keep him down. I mean, that's why The Rock and Shawn Michaels never had a match because Rock remembered that and resented him. And I don't find Dwayne to be a petty dude in the least. I don't know. Why, how did I get to there from, from work? Well, of course, my other job that I do every Sunday is I get down to my mother's house, and I have spent now the, – the way that I track this is the NFL season, I believe that it was just the 12th week of the season. So this was the 12th consecutive Sunday that I was down there putting together garbage bags, and it's getting, again, tough because there's stuff that I can't quite fit into garbage bags at this point where I'm now moving furniture of a recliner that belonged to my paternal grandfather. So my father's father, who died in 2001. I don't know why his crappy recliner is in the house, but I had to get it up the, out the bulkhead, carry it to the garage, where I'm going to utilize it as the one free thing to throw away. But I managed to find a number of different personal effects And I'm not just talking about the IWA notebook, which I've mentioned, the Imaginary Wrestling Association. I'll probably have fun with that another time. But on this week for (laughs) crazy crap I found in my mother's house, it just happens to be all stuff belongs to me or my personal effects or what have you. going through this project, there have been a number of things that have made me laugh, made me wistful, a whole range of emotions, especially in finding pictures. And I'm actually going to start out with a picture that I do not remember occurring, but it is a picture of me with famous people. Of course, I'm only 12 years old at the time, and I'm wearing a very, very off-spec Boston Bruins jersey, which would be very out of character for me at this point in time. It must have been when I went to the Bruins Carnival that they would hold every year in the old Boston Garden, and there is me and my dad uh, with Ken Hodge, who was a great goal scorer in the 70s, Johnny Busick, who scored 500 goals, Hockey Hall of Fame, and Brad Park, one of the greatest defensemen of all time. And the last guy, I could not place him for whatever reason. And I was happy to see this picture, and then I was kind of sad when I saw that it was actually Garnett Ace Bailey, who was, later became a scout for the Los Angeles Kings and died in one of the planes that went into the World Trade Center on 9-11-2001. So a whole range of emotions looking at that picture. So for number two, I had to go to the back of the attic, where this this was actually hidden behind this freaking chair. I cannot believe that, like, my mother didn't even like her father-in-law. Like, why, why was she agreeing to, to hold this furniture there? But behind there, I found some ski poles and skis and I thought hmm that's interesting I have not used these skis since the last time I went skiing which was April of 1995 yes it was way up in Vermont so they still had the skiing at that point but like I wonder if those things would fit of course I don't think I have the boots for it And I should probably just sell the damn skis, because after 25 years, I'm probably not getting back out there. I was 15 years old the last time I I did. I would get tired really quick when I was out there. And (laughs) I get tired pretty quick doing a lot of things at my age these days. But coming in at number one is i found a lot of school coursework of mine. I would love, you know, at some point i got to dig out that paper, that I wrote for a creative writing assignment my freshman year in high school in which I invented a Gilligan's Island where the castaways mingled with Colombian drug lords and sold cocaine that was grown by the professor. Yes, I actually did this in a Catholic school, which uh, obviously I did not get high marks. But this was a bit before that. It was from the fifth grade, which I can tell because... I referenced Doogie Howser, M.D., and I was obsessed with that show in the first season. The question was, on the left, draw your favorite TV show. On the right, draw a TV show you don't like. Write a letter to your TV state to a TV station about your opinions. And I wrote, and I quote, I like Doogie Howser because it is fun to watch and has a purpose to every episode. Well, I think we can all agree on that. Oprah is not re- really even smart. Oprah just tries to hog up ABC's airtime. Now, apparently, I did not understand the concept of syndication at that point. Where, yes, just because she's on WCBB ABC 5 in Boston does not mean she's on ABC 7 in some other market. It, it would vary from town to town. I, I think I just failed to figure that out. So, apparently, I have been a critic this whole time, even in 1990. Uh, I, apparently, I was just into reviewing TV shows back then, and not so much wrestling. Now that I think about it, I don't think I ever reviewed a wrestling show when I was that age. Anyway, <laughs> this crazy crap I found in my mother's house. No matter what wrestling promotion you're looking at, they always go through transitional periods where you get a shift from one era to another. One of the more lengthy ones that I can ever think of is the entire calendar year 1983 for the WWF because it, it fits so neatly into that box where, it just you know, you could take January 1 to, well, not quite December 31 because Hogan's debut is December 27th. And Backlund loses the title on December 26th. So maybe, maybe you could call the year December 26th to December 25th, like certain healthcare plans out there that expire on Christmas and then re-up for the next year the day after. Yeah, those things actually exist in America, believe it or not. <laughs> it's really strange. But when you start the year, Yes, Vince McMahon buys the company in June of 1982. But remember, he famously has to make payments on it or he loses all the money and it reverts back to the original owners. So he's kind of laying low making those payments, not taking any big risks, knowing that he is going to be able to make the payments. And then once he does, which occurs in the middle of 1983, he can kind of put his plan in action. But meanwhile, at, at the beginning of the year, I mean things are things are very very different and n- not a whole lot is going on for much of the year that's why I haven't done a lot of nineteen eighty three shows in fact, I did championship wrestling from december thirty first so clearly this part of the era interests me so Vince is fully in charge by december that that happens in the middle of the year. He pulls out of the nWA at the end of the summer at the annual meeting. Hulk Hogan is signed at a certain point it's before christmas eve so before this airs but after this taping occurred which was on december 7th in hamburg pennsylvania by the way hulk hogan also married linda on december the 18th so he was a very busy guy during this time period standing up verne which Vern did not exactly deserve to be treated well in my opinion considering his ask was not exactly uh, in line with reality like oh yeah Japan you get, give me all your japan and merchandising money hogan's like okay well i can just go here and they'll give me the title and i'll get more merchandising money and i'll still get to work japan when i want to but yeah okay, all right enough about hogan cuz technically he's not there yet he hasn't debuted yet yeah he might be signed but he's not not been on tv not appeared at a of tv taping what about bob no, not the 1992 movie with Bill Murray, but Bob Backlund. Does he turn heel? Oh, no, no. That's that's a no-go. As he explained in his book, he did not want to do that because his daughter was of a certain age and didn't want things to be difficult for her, which I can certainly respect that. But it was is this changing image as 1983 goes along where you had wrestler Bob Backlund who had the trunks and then he becomes singlet-wearing Bob Backlund. So I guess – turning the amateur wrestling thing up a notch, where he appears to be a little less built. It's not quite as noticeable, I think, as people point out, but maybe I'm just not looking close enough. But the problem is, by this point in a reign, where you're literally in the sixth calendar year of it, you're starting to get retread opponents, because there's there's only so many heels that you can bring in and throw at backland in Madison Square Garden, the Spectrum, and have it be meaningful and plausible. In fact, Backlund even went down to Florida for a little bit in July. I was kind of surprised to see that, because that would have been about the time that Vince took charge, maybe buttering up Eddie Graham, I guess. And Backlund had a history in Florida, predating his WWF time. He even did a shot in Houston, which I thought was very interesting, because you don't think of Paul Bosch having anything to do with the WWF, but that was in May which I guess technically might have been when Vince Sr. was still in charge, but all this is just kind of a gray area. So early in the year, the challengers for Backlund's title were Big John Studd, who I guess is a relatively new opponent because he hadn't faced him earlier on. Superstar Billy Graham, of course, was the champion that Backlund beat back in 78. Playboy Buddy Rose, say no more, but he was cycling out. He's going to be heading back to portland and elsewhere very soon magnificent morocco who was the ic champion so you were going to separate those two guys they weren't going to meet on a regular basis and even ivan koloff a man who was the worldwide wrestling federation champion for a very brief period in 1971 he turns up for much of 1983 and he does not have the same number of matches with Backlund as those other guys and sergeant slaughter probably the most successful out of all those, because they did an actual angle, the Harvard step test in May of 83, which if I'm going to do another show from this year for the WWF, it's probably going to be that one where Backlund is doing the Harvard step test for the entire show. And Slaughter just comes out they're like, all right, screw this. I'm attacking you right now. So I because mean, he did come off as a body Donna Backlund, he became less likable for I don't know if there are necessarily tangible reasons because 1983, it was a very different time and wrestlers, baby faces and heels. It was just completely different back then. But as you get to year end, clearly Vince McMahon wants to move on. In fact, I even point to the Backland stud match from January of 83 where Vince is not exactly complimentary towards Backland. He's not burying him, but Vince is coming off way more as a sort of heel announcer and on this show is where they start that whole process so it is historic in that way yeah you can see title changes but these these angles that kick start something that's going to lead to Hogan winning the title to Sheik beating Backlund and I guess I'm kind of working my way backwards which by the way for all my stuff about every other character being a rehash technically the iron sheik is as well although he was known as hussein arab in 1980 and wasn't exactly you know in regular pro it's not like he had three at msg with Backlund. i mean Backlund was facing pat patterson in 79 and into 80 he just had different opponents like ken patera at the texas death match but as i said at the top this is a very 1983 show I mean, just with the lineup. We got Sergeant Slaughter. We got the Wild Samoans, who are fresh off losing the tag titles. We got Mr. Fuji. We even got, yes, the Invaders, which I think is the most quintessential 1983 WWF thing. Because, yeah, they bleed in 84 a little bit, but you don't see them in 82. And it's just it like, oh, okay, we can mark time by these guys. And this also has SD Jones and Jose Luis Rivera. And I'm mentioning them because... Yeah, they're not the enhancement talents in this match. This is where 83 WWF is standing. So, with all that in mind, why don't I get right to it? It's WWF All Star Wrestling from December 24th, 1983. (laughs) Obviously, because it's 1983, there's no this day in Saved by the Bell history or anything like that, but I'm just going to take a moment to say I really don't have any interest in this reboot of the series on Peacock. Yes, I know. I love Cobra Kai, and it's effectively the same thing, but frankly, I had enough of Saved by the Bell through the years. I don't need to see Mario Lopez in some other form. You remember, I remember him getting involved with the WWF with like Pacific blue or something. Cause it was on USA after Sunday night heat. I'd have to look that up again, but I just remember Mario being, I don't know, but apparently he was a legitimate amateur wrestler to the point where, yeah, I guess AC Slater was partly maybe a little bit based on him. Now they, it, on All Star during this time period, Gary Michael Capetta is the ring announcer in Hamburg because they're not going to make Joe McHugh make that drive to Hamburg for for All Star for the B Show. But he's cut out of all of these, and it's one of the many factors in this show that just really freaking annoys me. It, I mean, yeah, the, not having the ring announcer that, that's minor, but I, I do like to hear the announcements of the wrestlers where what the hometown is, and that's that's all fine. Of course, the beginning of All Star Wrestling. It's it's very funny how it's you know Bob Backlund holding up the belt in triumph, but <laughs> that that ain't going to be for long as we know. But the other thing that's very frustrating about this episode, and I'm probably going to complain about it again, is the the audio levels are way way off. And I tried to fix it the best I can. But if you go and watch this video on YouTube, you're not going to be able to hear Vince and Pat, who are our hosts, Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson. And Pat's winding down his career in weekly TV, which is probably for the best now that I think about it. Although occasionally he would make a few good points as I'll cover as warranted as we go through this show. And we start with the Invaders. I don't know if there's a more quintessential 1983 WWF team than them. Combined weight 454 pounds as Vince tells us, taking on the team of Rene Goulet and Billy Williams. Not, not Billy D. Williams and not the Billy Williams who, I don't know, if, I, I almost thought of him as like an underrated baseball Hall of Famer, but then I looked up his stats and yeah, it kind of falls short of like what your average Hall of Famer is, especially one who played first base in left field for the Chicago Cubs from 1959 through 1974. Now, he only had a cup of coffee the first two years, so he won Rookie of the Year in 61, 426 career home runs, which back in those days was nothing nothing to shake a stick at. There's no cage match for the wrestler Billy Williams, so I can just go off on this baseball. I I could just continue to read baseball stats if you want me to. Baseball, baseball, baseball. All right, just one more quick thing because I find it infinitely more interesting than kind of -of run-of-the-mill 1983 WWF. I touched on the 61 Cubs for which Billy Williams won National League Rookie of the Year. They employed, the franchise did, the Chicago Cubs, a college of coaches – In 1961 and 62, basically, instead of having a sole on-field manager, they had a committee of eight guys. Needless to say, that never got tried again. And at that time, the Cubs were not really Chicago's team. It was kind of a healthy split between them and the White Sox. And White Sox had been to the World Series in 59 and still had a pretty good team, if I remember correctly, in the early 60s. So anyway. I was referring to the lack of a cage match profile for Billy Williams, which is usually a sign that somebody is like the purest jobber that there is. Like if they can't if they can't even be bothered to dig up any information on a guy, well, I mean, you know that that just about says it all. But on the Invaders, a a team out of Puerto Rico, now Invader One is relatively infamous. Yes, it is. Jose Gonzalez, under the mask. And yes, he killed Bruiser Brody. And yeah, supposedly he says it was in self-defense, but everybody was too terrified to go back and testify and all that. Tony Atlas was there and all that. Very specious stuff came out about that. And because he killed somebody that Dave Meltzer liked, no Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Hall of Famer for him. Hall of Fame for him. However... (laughs) To go back to cage match, Invader 1's cage match is an exercise in internet revenge by people who were very pissed off that he killed Bruiser Brody, whether it was in self-defense or not, as his current total rating with 66 votes, 66 valid votes, I should say, is a 0.75, which I know wouldn't rank last for the GPA of the Delta pledges for 1962 but still uh, pretty bad 52 of those are a zero got a 0.0 average rating in 2018 very Blutarsky-esque and some some of the comments here are he was your traditional run-of-the-mill 80s Puerto Rican babyface wrestler decent selling and a relatively mediocre brawler who the crowd loved for some reason however his overall averageness is not why I rate him a zero but for the murder of Bruiser Brody okay then the next one I hope this man lives a happy life in hell because I still don't believe this scum hasn't been arrested since he killed a great wrestler. R.I.P. Bruiser Brody. Yeah, so uh, (laughs) it it goes on like that. Like there's a lot more where that came from. But here's the thing with the shadows. I'm going to put all that aside because, you know, that doesn't happen until five years after this. You look at them and you say, okay, well, maybe they're like a high flying team for their time. But no, there's really not much going on with them. I don't understand. Maybe in Puerto Rico, their 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 style translates better. I I don't quite understand. But, but we get a monkey flip by number two, who is in there, and all I can think of is Austin Powers at that point. But he ends up in trouble for a lengthy period as Williams and Goulet kind of go to town on him. For a little bit, a, a bit of an extended period for what you, th- I guess Rene Goulet is a named guy. I mean, after all, he's a former WWF tag team champion alongside, <laughs> alongside Carl Gotch, which always feels weird to say. So Vincent Pat, and this, this is something that would actually continue later on in the show. Our referee for this one is the much maligned Hilberto Roman, who would often get the midget matches at MSG. Because, well, like I guess maybe he was equipped to handle comedy better than officiating wrestling matches and making it look legitimate and all that. But boy, I get the impression for this that Vincent Pat did not like Alberto Roman.
0: A moment ago, you saw the referee just right in the middle of the ring, continuing to kick invader number two, and uh, you did threaten him with disqualification, but took very little action other than just a little of a veiled threat. I
3: to
2: me that the a what's even funnier than them burying the official in the ring is the very rare zero count we get on a pinfall attempt where roman doesn't even get down quick enough in order to make even a one count invader one gets in there but williams and goulet are working him over as well which like this is supposed to be the name team here i'm, I'm once again I'm, I'm left a little bit puzzled here but this is the Invaders. I mean, they're pretty much just kind of a nothing mid card team. I'm thinking maybe he'll hit a cutter out of nowhere, but no, that's that that's his move for later on. He only does that in the shower, but eventually he does tag out. We get a corner whip by Invader Two. This is why I hate like these mass teams where I have to refer to them as one and two, especially one as dull as these guys, and they are the duller than shit. Oh my god, this is very terrible to watch, and I hate. I hate being this negative about it, because usually I can find some sort of bright spot about this, but there ain't no silver lining with these guys, because they hit a double drop kick, and it's like, okay, yeah, these dudes are not exactly the Rock and Roll Express here, and a Somersault Senton finishes for the win, which I guess would be high-flying for the era, and you'd see the Rougeos do something similar a couple of years later, but... V- even Vince and Pat on commentary, the invaders are the babyfaces, which is an interesting name for a babyface team. And they're killing them for the double team lasting a while. But by extension, they're actually going after Hilberto Roman for whatever reason. Maybe he sneezed in front of Vince or something. I, I have to imagine it was something like that.
0: A question put to us
1: this week from Michael McDonald from Holyoke, Massachusetts. What's it Who is the oldest male and female wrestler at the present time? That is active male and female wrestler at the present time. And how uh, is that what would you say? Well, now you're asking the question, how many people do you think live in the range? So, who on the cat. I would say the oldest lady wrestler would have to be fabulous in the And the oldest male, the oldest male, uh, uh, the oldest one uh you, is, uh...
2: Now, for those of you who don't quite have the hearing to pick up what was being said thanks to the horrible original audio that I've tried to clean up but is just very, very difficult, there was a letter from a guy named Michael McDonald <laughs> from Holyoke, Massachusetts, TS, who's the oldest female and male wrestler going right now? And Pat's like, well, the oldest woman's got to be Fabulous Moolah. <laughs> The oldest man, he just refused to answer. Apparently, Pat didn't want to alienate anybody. So why don't we go right into the next match. Sergeant Slaughter taking on Ted Bailey. And this is a case where the Marine song that Slaughter comes to the ring. The music is blaring at a point where it sounds like the most obnoxious overdub that you could think of on the WWE Network. By which, of course, I mean the Ravishing Rick Rude one that's so freaking loud because they have to drown out the regular stripper song. So you can't even hear Vince talk or or, or him say, I'm so annoyed during this. And even when they go quiet at the beginning of the match during the local ad spot where Howard Finkel will tell you what's coming up at the Elks Lodge in Queens or wherever they're holding shows here in late 83, Gutbuster in a clothesline by Slaughter, who of course was managed by the Grand Wizard earlier in '83. He passes away in October, so you have this weird interim period where Slaughter, who certainly a good enough promo to be a heel on his own, but of course they'd have much bigger plans for him in 1984. Cobra Clutch finishes very very quickly. I said it before how Slaughter's face turn is one of the greatest instances of timing it it just worked out perfectly with the mood of the country in 84 you get the olympics in the summer and he had one hell of a year of course the funny thing is by the end of the calendar year he has departed due to a pay dispute with vince on commentary not so much here because i couldn't freaking hear what they were saying They, they generally pivoted to just calling him tough they would not call him dirty or ruthless so change it to tough you can you 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 can make anybody a baby face with that. I have come to find out and I cannot believe that this has skipped my attention because obviously I am such a fan of this late 83 84 period or at least I'm just fascinated by all the changes going on that I did not realize, I overlooked that Sergeant Slaughter was actually the Canadian heavyweight champion at the time of this match. He would not lose it until the middle of January up in Toronto back to Angelo Mosca, who I believe he had won the title from the previous July. But it's interesting that that's technically an NWA title, and the WWF hasn't been part of the NWA since August. And Slaughter Slaughter wins it in July. He was in the company at that point. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting deal, I think, there. So we get Eminence Front as our bumper. Going into the next match. Because that's a Who song from 1982. You don't really you don't really think of Who songs after a certain point. That might be the most prominent one from after Keith Moon died. It's the mostly instrumental. But, you know, Daltrey says a few things during it. And, of course, we got the Wild Samoans out. Because it's not an 83 WWF show without them. And they're taking on Nick DiCarlo and Salvatore Balomo. And once again, I hate that the ring announcer thing gets cut as Afa and Sika immediately clear the ring. They're, they're very pissed off. They had just lost the tag team titles weeks before, although it was taped in early November. They, they waited a while to actually air it on championship wrestling. I wonder, Afa and Sika, did they have any sort of argument about which one of those guys is the head of the table? Cause with the storyline going on with Roman Reigns, which I think is very well done. Certainly the best thing that they've done with Roman Reigns in years, because I think, I think he's been made to play a character like this for quite some time. Afa and Sika, I mean, technically they're kind of equals here, but I get, who, who is the head of the table? I mean, High Chief Peter Maivia, he, he's, he's dead by this point, so I don't know. I don't, I don't think there was any real demand to see Afa and Sika feud with each other. However, uh, I do have one critique about the Roman Reigns thing. And I don't talk about modern product a lot. But it's one negative to this is y- you might be building up anticipation that, oh, Roman's going to face The Rock at some point for, like, head of the family privileges or something. And that's not going to happen. Because the Rock's, the Rock's not walking through that door, fans. In the immortal words of Rick Pitino. And if you expect him to walk through the door, well, he's not going to be gray and old because he's still freaking jacked as all hell. As Salvatore Balomo tries to hit a crossbody, but he gets caught by Afa, who just kind of slams him down. And then we get a lengthy chin lock by Sika on Balomo, which I'm, I'm getting very frustrated by this because it, and they're doing a thing now where he's kind of slipping it into a choke. Now, I don't know if this is some sort of predetermined thing where Vince goes to Sika beforehand. It's like, Hey, can you do a thing where like, you got a chin lock, but you're sneaking it into a choke so that, once again, he can go after Alberto Román and just rip him to shreds?
0: A little bit of death, but for the tag a month ago. Mr. Carlebaugh, oh, come on, referee, come on! That's a great choke, That is.
1: look at him, look at the wrist of Sika right there, and you're not freaking him, no, no, it's not a choke. He's going to the side, finally, let's do it! Well, looks to me like the referees are afraid of the Samoa.
2: Look, I know Alberto Roman is not a good referee, but something must have happened where they're going at him hard twice very early in this broadcast, and I wonder, because he hangs around for quite a while. He's the referee when Andre's getting his hair cut in the ring a year from now on Championship Wrestling. He was completely ineffectual and useless, but could they fire these guys? I mean, you have State Athletic Commission referees. And Roman had been there for a while. So it's like, well, there's a limited number, but like, why do you why are you even using him if, if you hate him that much? Or maybe it's just a plot device for him to get on the officials. I don't know. I don't know what the hell this is, because I'm getting very frustrated watching this as Sal is sent over the top to the floor, and then Sika goes out and puts the boots up. Oh, excuse me. No, he actually puts the feet to him. And I, I guess that's why He's Mel Phillips' favorite wrestler. Ah, ha, ha. Going for the low-hanging fruit there. Tag to Nick DiCarlo, who has been on Greetings for Battletown a number of times, often on Maple Leaf Wrestling because he is Canadian. And he is one of the plainest wrestlers of all time. I mean, it's not just because he's Canadian. It's like... There's nothing about him that really stands out. Like He doesn't wear the knee pads or, or anything. He, he gets cut off immediately. Like the Samoans are in no mood to be selling for anybody at this point. Big back elbow, falling headbutt. And then I'm delighted to see a Samoan drop done by one of the wild Samoans. It's like in its natural habitat. And then that is actually what ends this. But this thing went over seven freaking minutes. And I like the wild Samoans. I, I, I like the act and everything with Albano. But holy God. I mean, I, uh, Balomo and Nick DiCarlo, even if you're going to treat them as not like total enhancement guys, they got in zero offense in this match. It was seven minutes of, and it wasn't even like ass kicking because you had to have that chin lock spot in order to, <laughs> so that they could yell at Alberto Roman. They, Vincent, Pat, remind us. You can write to Wrestling at PO Box One Five Three Eight, Greenwich, Connecticut, and I want to write to it right now. I don't know who's got it. I've talked about this in the past. No more seven-minute squash matches. I beg you, please. How awesome! If we go to the, if we go to the alternate. Alternate version of Karate Kid where Mr. Fuji is Mr. Miyagi, <laughs> and he, Fuji would have one hundred percent
0: killed him.
2: No, no. What would have happened? It would have been a completely different movie from what you're seeing if Mr. Fuji is Mr. Miyagi. I think what would have happened is him and Daniel would have come over, and Fuji Fuji would have just thrown salt in his eyes when he was choking Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be, be like, ah, I can't see. How am I going to drive home? My eyes are closed. I can't open them. He would have gone, very good. <laughs> no pain, no gain. Pulled that one from GFA Live a couple of weeks ago where we broke down the scene in Karate Kid 2 where Miyagi and Kreese have the confrontation in the parking lot at the beginning of the movie. And once again, Keithy brought up the notion of what if Mr. Fuji was playing the role of Mr. Miyagi you just substitute in everything and certainly it becomes a very different movie it, Daniel would have ended up more like he was in Karate Kid 3 than he was at any point because it would have been basically just Cobra Kai except using all of Fuji's tactics salt in the eye that sort of stuff why am I bringing this up because Fuji's match is up next year Mr. Fuji against Steve Lombardi who believe it or not yeah, he's, he's there in 1983 wearing his lavender trunks Fuji is Mr. Miyagi. That's that's kind of a I'm I'm not sure how well it works. It changes the movie quite a bit, but I think it becomes like a race to the bottom for both Daniel and the Cobra Kai guys, where, you know, they're being taught violence. Kind of like what's happening in Cobra Kai in in season two, some of the same themes as a Mr. Fuji versus Crease sort of thing. So yeah. Babyface Steve Lombardi, which you would not see for long once they figure out that he was better as the heel job guy facing all of the top babyfaces. His first match was in July of 83 at a house show against Sweet Hansen in Queens, mind you. And he kind of worked the circuit around New York City. And when I say that, I mean like just Long Island and the five boroughs. Those are the only places work. he worked. Wasn't ready for MSG yet his TV debut would be on the October 29th edition of All Star Wrestling against the Iron Sheik. So, kind of kind of a big spot there since they clearly had plans for Sheik and he's coming up a little bit later on this show in the Victory Corner segment. And Lombardi, he certainly looks younger here. I, I don't want to say he looks green because his offense never really developed at any point. He's only, he's only 22 years old here. So it's not like anything groundbreaking. It's not like when I found out that Mario Mancini was 18 years old in his first matches on television. Did you know that Mr. Fuji debuted in 1965 at the age of 31? So a bit of a late start in the business for him. So that, that makes him 49 years old here, which, uh, sounds like it's up there, but it's the same age that Ric Flair was in 1998. So to kind of put it in a more, I was going to say modern perspective, but 1998 is much closer to 1983 than it is to the current day. I mean, I haven't been this depressed since I realized that I am now older than Carol Brady was for the entire run of the original Brady Bunch. Clean break by Fuji against the ropes to start, but that's only going to set up the non-clean break right after that. Big backdrop, vertical suplex, and then he locks in a nerve hold because... Apparently, that is the thing to do, but it does allow another, another uh, letter from the fans to be read.
0: Joe Beavons from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, asking you, whatever happens to wrestler Ace Freeman?
1: Ace Freeman, uh, I see him occasionally in a Pittsburgh area, John around and see Taylor to all the wrestlers, and still looks great, his age still works out every day so it works out nice man and uh still uh loves wrestling very very much uh, we're always happy to see
2: him given the kind of changes to professional wrestling that were about to happen mainly at the hands of vince mcmahon i wonder if ace freeman was going to love wrestling the way that he did back in his heyday which was the 50s and 60s when when he first said that the audio was so bad i thought he said what happened to ace fraley like I don't know, he left Kiss last year. I don't, I don't know what he's doing now, but if you want to see him, I mean, he was in Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. If you could find a copy of that, I'd greatly appreciate it. And no, I I actually mean that because no copies of it I could, I I remember searching for clips of that a long time ago and I could not, could not find them. And it was kind of upsetting, but probably not really that upsetting. I didn't realize how lifeless this show was until I got to this match because Ordinarily, I'm a defender of Fuji. You know, he's not a total slug in the ring, but like there are coma patients that have shown more energy and life than the crowd in Hamburg on, on this day. Now granted, I think they were taping four episodes of All Star, but they actually cut some of it and they re-ran an old match, which we're going to see a little bit later. The Vader, Vader slash Fuji bomb finishes this one off. And at the very least, the one thing that we did get out of this, the one thing we can always remember, is this is Pat Patterson calling a Steve Lombardi match.
1: Look at this. Look at this, Mr. ripping! Actually, look at him fully on the mouth of Steve Lombardi. My goodness. Incredible. You can almost see what Mr. Lombardi had for breakfast.
2: Well, it is certainly preferable that we learn that information from the hole in the front rather than the hole in the back. Seeing as though we're about halfway through the program, I'm hoping that it's gonna pick up soon. And as I look, our next match is Jose Luis Rivera against Ken Jugan. So I'm not expecting a whole lot here because Jose Luis Rivera, not exactly pushed around this time. Occasionally they throw him a few wins on television. I would expect that, you know, against Ken Jugan, who would, you would never see pick up a win on WWF television. Rivera, he'd been there since the around the mid-70s. I mean, he's kind of a name that people remember. I'm not going to go out and say that he's more famous than that famous crossover star Kenny Omega. I mean, but people certainly remember who Jose Luis Rivera is. He actually, one funny thing about his WWF career is when he came in, he was under a mask as the Red Demon. And when he wrapped up in 1990 and into 91, he was under a mask as the Black Demon. Of course, he's much more well-known for his other masked gimmicks, that being the Shadows of 1987 WWF and the Conquistadors, stars of the 1988 Survivor Series tag team match. And one thing about Rivera, in terms of all the various identities that he had. And it's not like he's going to be ridiculed the same way that like a Brutus Beefcake was for his 85,000 gimmicks in WCW. It's sometimes he would go by Jose Luis Rivera, and sometimes he would go by Mac Rivera. In looking at the records, I figured, okay, well, there's got to be a dividing line where he stops being called Mac, because when he comes back in 1982, on a more regular basis, he's being called Mac Rivera. But he kind of goes back and forth a little bit, like flipped sort of interchangeably. And I thought, well, maybe there's, maybe he's Mac if he's a baby face and Jose if he's a heel. But no, there's absolutely no pattern to this. And it's maddening on this show for which I'm trying to find stuff to talk about. His, his opponent didn't matter what the opponent was. Faces, heels, foreign dignitaries. I bring that up because a Tatsumi Fujinami would stop by. Or when he stopped in one of the times, his opponent was Jose Luis Rivera. As Ken Jugan, known as Lord Zoltan in some of the western Pennsylvania independent promotions. It's just some mat work to start out by both guys. Nothing terrible, but nothing really great either. As we get a wrist lock countered by Rivera. And that's kind of all this is, is Jugan will do a move. Like a head scissors, Rivera would prove that he would get out of it. I mean, there, there's just not a whole lot to this. Jugan gets a couple of strikes, but Rivera reverses a corner whip and Jugan goes hard into the corner. A beal out by Rivera as they, Vince and Pat start talking about other stuff, which they should be doing during a match like this where Rivera is not a pushed guy. So perhaps discuss what's going on. And they actually do make use of the time here. In talking about the Iron Sheik coming on the scene, his segment's up next, thank God, and how he wants to be world champion. (laughs) Iron Sheik world champion, imagine that.
1: I mean, money-wise, apparently the Sheik uh, has a lot of money and owns a lot of oil fields in in Iran and uh, has offered a great deal of money to Mr. Blassie if he would manage him to the championship. So, Mr. Blassey, we all know how much he loves money, even more than anything else in the world.
0: Well, Mr. Blassey, perhaps second only to one thing Mr. Blassie has stated uh, on many occasions, that the one thing he desires more than life itself is to own the World Wrestling Federation. Perhaps even more than money. Blassi would like to have the title, of course. Many of you will recall, it's great a career as Freddie Blassi had as a pro wrestler, and none had any greater. Hardly. The one title that eluded him was the World Wrestling Championship, and he is yet to manage a wrestler to hold that distinction.
2: That's actually how the Iron Sheik was presented when he came back in the fall of '83 as a guy who'd throw around money. And you know, made from oil oil fields in Iran. There there were segments on this, not not like the million dollar man vignettes or anything where he's throwing around money, but I believe there was a segment with the sheik going around New York City with Blassie. I vaguely remember that from an all-American from late eighty three that I covered way back when. And luckily Rivera times his weird roll up pinfall and like the exact moment that Vince stops talking there is like excellent maneuver by Jose Luis Rivera and that is what wins the match for him and a woman in the crowd is they, they kind of pan as uh, they pan the crowd i guess as they're going to commercial <laughs> there's a wo- there's a woman just smoking in like raw water too i mean you you got to love wrestling audiences around that time time because it is such a such a wild west i mean not quite like that woman who had like the fake monkey around her neck in 81 in allentown but still people people smoking in wrestling audiences hey vince i thought you were going to take it out of the smoke-filled auditoriums maybe that's maybe that's what they're talking about they're talking about that one woman in hamburg who was filling the uh arena whatever the hell the place in hamburg was called with smoke
0: thank you very much and welcome to victory Corner.
2: This week's special guest is the Ayatollah Blasi and his protégé the Iron Sheikh. One of the reasons why the Iron Sheikh is in this position is Bob Backlund, if he was going to lose the title he wanted to lose it to somebody with a sense of legitimacy. And the the Iron Sheikh had that in terms of like a amateur wrestling background and all that. But what I think makes the act complete is yeah, okay, so you got the Iran thing, that's fine. But the fact that Blasi who you know, of course, is an American. Is willing to go all the way and actually just dress up in the full Ayatollah costume and call himself Ayatollah Blassie. All I gotta say is, you know, out of the three wise men, I obviously would want Wizard to be my manager because I just absolutely love his voice as a promo. And Blassie, you know, I I, I like him as well. But he is really more of a foreign heel sort of guy, so this really plays in to his strengths.
3: More diamonds, more jewelry that the next world heavyweight wrestling champion, the Iron Sheik, will give to me. And as I've said this many, many, many times, I want that title more than even life itself. And I know, as we turn that corner, I finally found the Hope Diamond in the Iron Sheik. This man is without a doubt the greatest wrestler in the world today. And he will make my prophecy come true. I know I will be handling the next world heavyweight wrestling champion. Can we take that as a resolution for the new year? You can take that whatever you want. A resolution, dissolution, anything. All I said before, I'm going to be wearing more diamonds. More jewelry, more gold. Because standing beside me, I've got the diamond mine and the gold mine. And oil. And oil. (laughs) Ha, ha. What else, what else, what else? I guarantee you, this is the oil well, the Iron Sheik, next world heavyweight wrestling champion. Just mark my that thing down. Mark it down!
2: Excellent promo by Blassie, sort of calling his shot going forward. As Sheik's just kind of standing behind him with his arms folded, and his eyes are kind of shifting all over the place, like he's expecting the cops to swarm on him or something like Oh crap. Is, is Vern gonna come in and uh, I'm gonna get found out that he was gonna pay me a bounty or whatever to break Hogan's legs? Oh no, no, no. We're, 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 we're still a ways from that. But another reason why this works so well, I've talked about how, yeah, Hogan beating the, the big bad Iranian sets him up as an all-American hero. And that, that's part of it too. But certain poetic justice or what have you for Hogan defeating one of Blassie's guys since the last time he was in the WWF. Hogan was managed by Freddie Blassie. Christmas 1983, that was the number one song in the country. Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson collaborating on Say Say Say. That, that tag team would not last very long because of Michael Jackson buying the Beatles catalog out from under McCartney's nose. And I'm actually looking at the album right now, and I have to confess that like the single album, and I took it off my wall of fame because I, I wanted to put the wrestling album that Keithy bought for me up in that spot. I, I just kind of got tired of that weird picture of McCartney and Michael Jackson holding hands. Or at least I think they're holding hands.
0: We're merely exchanging long protein strings. If you can think of a simpler way, I'd like to hear it.
2: I've always assumed that's what Jacko and McCartney are doing. Although With Michael Jackson, you never really can tell. So up next, we got the Magnificent Morocco, the Intercontinental Champion at this time. And when the match was taped, facing off against Barry Hart, who you may know better as Barry Horowitz. Now when I say when this was taped... They are actually re-airing this from the May 21st, 1983 All-Star Wrestling. So yeah, he was the champion, then he's the champion now, but it seems strange that they would take a match from seven months ago that already aired on this program and then just air it again. No, no special reason. I think the reason for this would be you tape four episodes of All-Star in one shot because you got this around Christmas, and And you 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 might be short a match or two, so you'll just run an old one, and you know rather than trot them out there once again. As Morocco is wearing a Raiders shirt, number thirty seven. Now, this being nineteen eighty three, is a little bit before my time. It's it's one of those shirts that you could get, like. It said Raiders. It's not like an actual Raiders jersey. It said Raiders on the shirt and then the 37 underneath it on the front. And then it just said 37 on the back. And I could not remember who wore that number. And sure enough, I I should have known. It's it's Lester Hayes, the great cornerback. Lester the Molester, as he was known at that time. Because apparently that had a different connotation because of the bump and run coverage. But he had one of the greatest seasons I don't know why people don't talk about this in hushed, reverential tones, but, you know, a great cornerback these days, kind of the paradox of football is, if you're a great cornerback, you're not going to get a lot of interceptions because the opposing quarterback isn't going to challenge you as much, so it's going to kind of depress your numbers. But back in the 80s, you know, they kind of flung the ball around. Quarterbacks did throw interceptions more regularly. They're more careless. When it came to like turnovers. But even with that. Lester Hayes in 1980. 13 interceptions. During the season. And then 5 more. In the playoffs. So he had 18 interceptions. And oh by the way. The Oakland Raiders won the Super Bowl that year. Over the Eagles in the Superdome. Just straight i don't know I don't know he's not in the pro Football Hall of Fame, and as a matter of fact, he returned an interception for a touchdown a week after this aired during the AFC wild Card game against the Pittsburgh Steelers en route to another Raiders Super Bowl victory in Super Bowl eighteen against the Washington professional football excuse me it's just the Washington football team now. Because we get a beach bomb chant, and we're kind of slow to get going. It's a very lengthy face lock on the mat. So Morocco's not putting out here like I hoped he would, but then Hart, nay Horowitz, re- reverses it into a hammer lock. But Morocco regains control quickly as befitting a champion. In 83, most of the year, he's feuding with Snooker. It leads to the famous cage match at MSG in October. It's more or less the blow-off that feud. Morocco won. He got knocked out of the cage by accident, and Snooker dragged him back in. That's how that whole thing got set up. And Morocco's not going to lose the title until the beginning of February in the Boston Garden to Tito Santana. Tombstone Piledriver finishes. And I just kind of wish, like, that this show, there hasn't been a single promo on it other than the Iron Sheik in... The victory corner. That's the only time you've heard an interview with a wrestler, which kind of goes to show. I mean, it's, it's better for, for the podcast. I think when there are more interviews like that. I mean, I've spoken very fondly of survivor series team promos, but you got to break this up somehow. I don't care if it's the B show, throw on the same promo as the A show. I don't care. Just give me something.
0: Now, there's no doubt Bob Backlund has extraordinary physical gifts, but I don't think Mr. Backlund even will be able to
1: handle this. Well, that's something I'm anxious to see, because I don't know if Bob Backlund ever did work out with those uh, Persian club.
2: So there is Bob Backlund, who's come out to accept the challenge of the Iron Sheik, who said that no American wrestler can do the Persian club thing over his head. Hold on, I- I'm going to wait. To get to Backland in all of this. But this is, this whole segment is kind of quintessential 1983 WWF where something is just a little bit off about all of it. Starting with the fact that Iron Sheik is spelled wrong on the Chiron is actually, (laughs) they spelled it S-H-I-E-K. Now I know I before E except after C Except that it really goes I before E, except after C, and for Sheik-E. That's how you remember how to spell Iron Sheik. So these are known as Persian meals, not like food. And generally they weigh 2 to 10 kilograms each, which would be 5 to 22 pounds for us normal people who use the non-metric system. Anyway, it's being sold as 75 pounds each. Because you're really going to pump it up. Because we're we're talking about professional wrestlers here. I mean, nobody's going to be impressed if you're doing, you know, a 10-kilogram thing with the Persian clubs. I mean, even I could probably do that. And I don't think I've exercised in quite a while. Now, Sheik, he had done this a few times prior. It's just, you know, before the matches to prove his strength and his superiority and all that. What I find interesting is he's wearing the long tights. Because, of course, when he faces Hogan in MSG a month from now, he's going to be wearing the very, very short trunks, which, which would show off his erection for sure. But <laughs> I don't know. I guess he kind of went back and forth with that sort of thing. So he does it after quite a bit of stalling. He then does, does the twirly thing, I, mean, I would say about ten times. And, you know, it's a kind of a neat thing, although a few people are chanting boring because who knows where this was in the taping. So Backlund, that's where Backlund comes out. Who's wearing? Uh, uh, I don't know. Is, is stolen right out of Tony Manero's closet? I think. Like maybe something like Tony Manero's hand me downs. I think is what Backlund is wearing. So he's going to accept this challenge. The only thing, you know, it's it's kind of awkward getting yourself warmed up, especially if you're wearing formal wear. It's like he just got back from the senior prom or something. Like, oh, yeah, now i got to swing these Persian clubs over my head. I'm sure this is going to go well, just like everything did for Bob Backlund in 1983, when, you know, yeah, people were probably tired of him at that point. But it's not like he was getting a lot of luck in the way things would break down.
0: Looks like it's even awkward to... No, he can't no, do it. it. That's awkward. all right. No, it's all right. Because at least Bob Backlund had the guts to come out here and attempt to do it, and it's all right. He shouldn't be embarrassed about that or anything. Backlund certainly knows, well, he's he's gotten so worked up about this Iron Sheik, I think it just bothers him to the nth degree. Backlund now going, trying to get, has him up. Backlund, look at this. Backlund, how about that? Oh, Backlund, how about it? Look at this. I can't believe he's doing it. Oh, no. A Sheik attacking Backlund from behind the Iron Sheik oh and a kick in the back of the neck oh I can't look at that Backlund holding on to his
1: neck one of those weights fell in the back of his head that's 75 pounds that fell right in the back of his neck
2: There are a number of different issues here, starting with the fact that when Backlund comes out, he gets a nice reception from the fans, but not exactly what you'd be looking for from your world champion. But then again, there's certain fatigue that has set in after five years and ten months, which is how long he has held the title at this point. And he gets into the ring, and he he fails at first, which, as Vince said, is actually fine, because he, he was literally, you could see him psyching himself into it, And then once he finally gets it going, clearly the plan here is to have one of those clubs where it's behind his neck and then Sheik attacks him and then the club falls on the back of his neck and now you can sell a neck injury. But Sheiky was a split second too late and when Backlund was twirling the thing behind him, it did not land on the back of his neck. Now Backlund is selling like it did at first – and then they kind of realize that Backlund like actually grabs the thing and kind of places it on the back of his neck. She lands a kick to it, and it's just so awkward how it comes off. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 pure Bob Backlund for the year 1983. I mean, nothing nothing could really go right for the poor guy. And of course, that this is all in the background of two nights later at MSG, where you get the neck injury, which he goes into. In his great 2015 book, I, I can't recommend Backlund's book enough because he gets details remarkably right. Like you, you don't get annoyed by like, oh, how, how the hell could he forget something like that? Like he, he got everything well documented. Backlund, from All American Boy to Professional Wrestling's World Champion, and he does talk about this. But I'm going to just take a step back to the night before in Allentown. This actually is one thing where I wonder. If it's correct, where Backlund says so, standing there by the ring with Vince Senior, which I thought was odd in late '83, but I could see Vince Senior kind of getting like <laughs> Vince. Vince Junior is like, Dad, you can keep the Backlund account. You know that that that's like kind of like the concession that he gave. I came up with this idea. This is Bob writing in his book. I came up with the idea of Sheik trafficking me and his camel clutch and not being able to break the hold, and Arnold being forced to throw in the towel because I had no prospect of escaping the hold, but wouldn't submit, putting myself at risk of permanent injury. It would go down as a submission finished it would put the chic over much more strongly than a fluky pin with a foot on the ropes. Funny that he mentioned that, since that is how he won the title off of Graham. Vince Sr. nodded as he listened to me lay out the proposed finish, then patted me on the backside almost apologetically as he left my side. I like that. Thanks, Bobby. So let's go to the next night in Hamburg, which is the scene that we're talking about right now. The next night in Hamburg, Vince Sr. told me they wanted me to do a little angle with the Iron Sheik's Persian Club Challenge at the tapings. The Sheik would come out and insult all the American wrestlers. Well, he didn't quite do that, but he had been laying the groundwork. And taunt them for their inability to work out with the Persian clubs. I was I was to burst out of the dressing room, taking off my suit coat and shirt as I went, ready to take up the mantle and defend America's honor. In the ring, I would deliberately fail on my first attempt, but then I would eventually hoist the clubs up and start swinging them just like the Sheik did, prompting him to attack me while I had the clubs up in the air. My job was to make sure that one of the clubs landed on the back of my neck so that I could sell an injury to my neck and shoulder that would set up the match with the Sheik at the Garden on December 26th and set me up... Of the Sheikhs, camel clutch submission hold, which of course targeted the neck and shoulders. Vince Sr. told me he liked the finish I had suggested, and that he knew that coupled with this injury angle that they were building in, it wasn't going to be bad for me that this all American that his all American boy wasn't going to get buried by the finish, even though I would be losing the world title to an Iranian madman on the day after Christmas in Madison Square Garden. I think Vince Sr. thought at the time I was going to be in the wrestling business for a long time after my title loss, and he wanted the finish to keep me strong. The angle on television went off awkwardly, although I had worked out with the Sheik's Clubs before. I kind of mentioned that briefly, but obviously, you know, he probably was. You know, behind the scenes, they legitimately weighed eighty pounds each and were difficult to swing over your head. Okay, well if Bob says that, I'll I'll take that at face value. And and those did look bigger than the ones I that you can buy off Amazon. And even more difficult to drop carefully on yourself without actually injuring yourself while doing it. So I guess he was trying to be too care. It's it's very hard to do an angle where you know you're 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 technically trying to injure yourself. It is kind of a weird thing, psychologically. When the Sheik attacked me, the club mostly missed me on the way down, and I had to almost pull it back on top of me in order to make the injury angle look more compelling. But I sold the injury on television as instructed, and the sage was set for me to pass the torch at the Garden on the 26th. So then he kind of goes into all that happening, (laughs) and then how he was supposed to have a rematch with him the next month, which, of course, Hulk Hogan would step in and fill the spot, but what, what, what a, what a piece of business this is that it, it, feels so sudden. Like picture yourself, and I always say this in the shoes of somebody want who had been watching the WWF for the previous seven years, let's say. And it's December 24th, 83. And yeah, you might be sick of Backland at this point, but to see him in a spot like this. And then two days later, he loses the title. It's still a great shock. To the system, especially when Iron Sheik wins the title, people don't know that Hogan is there yet, so they figure okay, what next? Is, is Backlund just going to win back the title? And if you're bored by the prospect of more more Backlund, then that probably doesn't appeal to you. It's just a really fascinating slice of time to be in, to picture yourself as a time traveler well, if you're a time traveler and you know what happens it's obviously not as interesting, but you're that person in 83 who had been watching for 7 years, it's kind of An interesting thing. I'd love to hear from anybody who is old enough that had been watching for a while uh, what their reaction was when they saw this. I mean, also, this is on Christmas Eve, too. So I'm pretty sure maybe not everybody saw this when it originally aired. There are probably some people in the garden that night who maybe didn't know. Because this is all-star wrestling. This didn't air on Championship Wrestling. I would have loved to have done the Championship Wrestling episode. Because it probably has a hell of a lot better audio than this one. Although, I will admit, the audio did get cleaned up by this segment. And I am very grateful for that.
0: In the ring right now, ladies and gentlemen, special delivery Jones. S.D. Jones from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 250-pounder squaring, looking at his tag team partner and having a little conversation. rather, his opponent, Charlie Fulton. Two veterans uh, in the ring with approximately the same amount of experience approximately the same body weight this is anyone's guess who's going to come out on top of this match we're ready for the action to commence.
2: well geez if this isn't the mother of all palate cleanser matches sd jones taking on charlie fulton to close out this edition of all-star wrestling as we kind of similar mat work to start out with the same as the jose luis rivera match earlier it's like Did they just take that template, and luckily they do change it up a little bit as you get an exchange of hammer locks on the mat, as Charlie Fulton mostly controls here with a side headlock. And what's interesting, and I remember Jim Ross talking about this on a podcast, and this was a long time ago because it's me listening to Jim Ross on a podcast where he was saying a side headlock is a move that you could turn into a finisher if you really wanted to. And he suggested that Mark Henry would be somebody that you could do that because he could use his weight and he had the strength and all. But what I like here, and it's interesting, maybe it's because there's been so little interesting on this show, is that Vince and Pat discuss the mechanics behind the side headlock on the mat and how how much damage it can do.
0: Oftentimes, Pat, when uh, we as viewers are wrestling fans, we'll see... A hold like this, but you, as a wrestler, know what's going on. We see no activity right now at the side headlock, but I'm sure you could tell some stories as to what's going on. Fulton is constantly moving. He's taking his his knuckles, grinding him into the the cheekbones of S. D. Jones, maybe even into the eye on occasion. There's all there's always things, subtle things like that, going on that we don't know about. Oh, nice leapfrog!
2: I I have to laugh that because vince goes on like this 20 25 second soliloquy about side headlocks and the damage it can do and all pat's got is oh what a leapfrog like uh that's that's just wonderful head scissor by sd to counter out of the side headlock and then he ends up in a hammer lock sd controls with the hammer lock but fulton fights back with a cross corner whip SD goes hard into the corner. Not an SD Jones charge, though, because he didn't miss anything. And then when Fulton does a cross-corner whip again, SD hops up to the second rope, comes back with the cross body, and he picks up the one, two, three. So SD Jones, a victor here on All-Star Wrestling in 1983. Now, he would win from time to time. And Charlie Fulton, I think, was more of a guy that would only win on on select house shows. Like, you gotta, you gotta pay money at the arena if you want to see Charlie Fulton win. SD, yeah, you'd occasionally see him win on television in a spot like this. I remember back in early 81, he had a nice little undefeated streak going. But by 83, he'd kinda settled into his usual role where, you know, according to cage match, he's winning about 35, 40% of the time, which is, You know, not, not completely terrible. And the fans liked him. After all, he was from, he was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at that time, as they pointed out. And all these tapings are in Eastern Pennsylvania. Afterwards, Vince runs down everything that's going to be on the following week's All-Star Wrestling. Tito Santana versus Iron Mike Sharp, which was actually on the championship wrestling and they just replayed it over. Once again, my theory about being a match short for this particular taping. But, what was interesting about the 1231 All-Star is the Victory Corner segment with Vince McMahon as the guest, where he says that 1984 will be a turbulent year in wrestling.
0: Again, from an announcer's standpoint, um, I must say from a fan standpoint, because I consider myself one of the greatest wrestling fans ever as far as interest in professional wrestling is concerned. I see 1984 as being perhaps the most turbulent year in professional wrestling. I think that with the recent happenings that we have seen as of late, it would point toward a direction of a lot of turbulence, a lot of unusual things happening in professional wrestling, and it would probably open the gates for a, a virtual flood of wrestling talent into the World Wrestling Federation, the likes of which we've never seen before. I think that uh, many, many things would point to an indication that, uh, indeed, the the possibility of the, the turbulence that I mentioned would certainly be forthcoming.
2: What a piece of audio that is. I know it's total fucking word salad by Vince McMahon, which I know is par for the course, but just listen to everything that he's saying. And now that we know how 1984 played out in the wrestling world, I almost want to make it like the Apple commercial. You'll see that 1984. Well, I guess it did end up like 1980, Orwell's 84 for a lot of southern wrestling fans, at least for a while, but. It's one of the most fascinating pieces of audio because it's Vince being interviewed in 83 when he's just the announcer on television is not being revealed as the owner of the company. I mean, that is a hell of a long way away. Anyway, that is it for WWF All-Star Wrestling for Christmas Eve 1983. (laughs) This week on the Our Vantage Point podcast, Joe Moran and Michael Quinn, episode 201, starting a new segment called What Went Wrong With? And this week they're looking at WW Font BS. Oh wait, that's the WWF on TBS. Apparently my handwriting is so bad that I thought I had written the word Font BS, but you know. Whatever. So do give that a listen. And, of course, give them a follow on Twitter at OVP Podcast because they are one of the best follows out there. Now, on the sportscasters, my good pal Steve benny He's got Bob McKenzie on talking about his latest book. But I want to reserve special mention for his upcoming already recorded project. I've heard the galleys of it. See, galleys are what they call like the free books that they'd send to bookstores. And when I worked at Barnes & Noble back in the day, I'd get all those, too. But Steve and a fellow by the name of Dave Rollins, a rising podcast star, in my opinion, recorded the pilot episode of 24-inch podcast, looking at—it's going to look at the career of Hulk Hogan. In this case, it's looking at the build and match at WrestleMania Two with King Kong Bundy and exploring it from all different angles. I think you, if you enjoy this show, you're going to enjoy that when that is released. Now, I would do a YouTube comment theater— But this ridiculous video where the name is in Spanish, so like the username, so I thought that the whole thing was going to be in Spanish, but then it was in English, and I'm like, okay, well, that's fine, and then the audio was crap. Turned off the YouTube comments for whatever reason. I don't understand what that is going to accomplish, so I'm, you know what, I'm not going to get too worked up about that. There's a lot else going on in life to to worry about. Life is too short, Okay. And I'm not just saying that because we lost Pat Patterson yesterday at the age of 79. I just want to you know reflect upon it for a little bit. Obviously, everybody knows him as I would say the Godfather of the Royal Rumble match, which comes out of the time that he spent in the San Francisco territory, Roy Shire's group that would run a big battle royal every January. So that's that's where kind of the placement on the calendar. I don't know if that's actually a coincidence, but The fact that the Royal Rumble is in January works out well for a variety of reasons as tribute and also leading up to WrestleMania, and you can do builds, that sort of way. As a wrestler, I think Pat Patterson sometimes gets overlooked. I don't think I've had very many of his matches on here because he's not too active after, say, 1981. But his team with Ray Stevens in the 70s is legendary. There's not a whole lot of footage, which is why I think maybe you, you think of him more as the guy, Vince McMahon's right hand man, pretty much. The mind behind a lot of this golden era stuff. Now I know here we're, we're in 83 and he's the color guy and it might not have been his forte, but he was, he was occasionally entertaining. He, he wasn't bad. He had kind of a unique voice and everything, but hell, even in 1983, You know, he had a little bit of a feud, second half of the year with Ivan Koloff, pretty much Koloff's last WWF feud that he would have. He would come out of the broadcast booth every so often in 81 with Angelo Mosca taking a water pitcher to the head. And, of course, the legendary alley fight with Sergeant Slaughter in May of 1981 at Madison Square Garden. Certainly a top 20 WWF match of all time for the entire history of the promotion, no matter how you break that down. So he will be missed because as a mind for the business, and I know he would kind of go in and out, you know, he would have these retirements, but then he would return. I remember when Sami Zayn won the NXT title in 2015, he's there in the ring celebrating because of course, Sami Zayn being from Quebec and Pat Patterson always made sure to give special attention to that Montreal territory, which is why you always saw kind of weird Montreal only angles and of course he hosted a talk show for Montreal television just kind of an interview segment where he was kind, kind of a heel in that and led up to a couple of angles that again were Montreal only so rest in peace Pat Patterson passed away at the age of 79 yesterday as this show is released. Now, as as for next week, that it'll be. Let's see, December tenth. I mean, we are getting we're getting very close to Christmas, and I think I may. After my frustrations with this show, I mean, I might have to go with a golden era show, one that has promos, one that has event centers, one where you know the structure of the show is already built, and I like that. Then I don't even have to. I don't even have to think about it too much. Now I've made it through this entire show. Without playing any of my customary drops, which just feels a little bit weird at first glance, but that's just kind of the way it is. So no, murah, no, nah, nah, nah. And no, um, what's the other one? The more you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there, there you have it. But if, if you, en- if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five star review if you can on Apple podcasts, iTunes or whatever fine fine. podcast reviews are accepted because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this podcast. Of course, it also provides social proof when you tell another person that you enjoy this podcast. So that also is appreciated. And tune in next time for another exciting episode of This, i Out of Town.